Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Zoe Harfakri, Senior Lecturer in Soft Tissue Surgery, about bite wounds in, in general. Traumatic injuries uh, are, are quite common um, that we see in the QMH, both in the referral and the and the, for the first opinion of it, the general practice out of, out of hours cases that, that we see out of hours and on, on the weekends. And, and really, I think a bit differently to um, the first opinion demographic of cats and dogs, it probably is, it's not an equal distribution. There's definitely more dogs uh, associated with, with these sort of injuries uh, of traumatic uh, wounds, but uh, um, about 40, uh, over 40% 40 are, are cats. So a third of all our trauma cases are, are, are have penetrating injuries and half of those are from bite wounds. Which I imagine is is probably similar to uh, uh, to, to what is seen in general practice. The the routine approach to uh, uh, to these cases are, are just kind of the, the the same as in the major body assessment, um, and maybe the use of different uh, trauma scores to to evaluate these these patients. So there's the animal trauma triage score, which was evaluated out of the University of Penn a number of years ago, and that's being used by the the uh, um, VETCOT, which is a veterinary initiative of, of trauma, um, to, to capture information and see how valuable that, that is. So we still have the same um, approach to patients with traumatic injuries and respiratory distress, as far as I believe, is not necessarily associated with, more, with any mortality. But obviously, you know, we treat the shock and give them oxygen, fluids, um, analgesia and, and antibiotics. So I suppose so my, my, my first question um, to you would be, uh, so do you have any, any preference for the type of analgesia that you use in, in traumatic patients? Um, I think it's very important that we recognise that these patients can um, suffer very extreme pain, but of course it can be variable because the extent of the trauma is very variable and cannot be readily appreciated by looking at the superficial wounds so of course careful patient assessment um, and pain scoring is essential followed by further serial assessment um, but I would always favour um, in the first instance um, administering uh, a pure um, opioid agonist such as <coughs> a methadone um, and then monitoring the patient's response um, and then introducing further um, analgesia um, if necessary. Um, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory um, would provide a great contribution to reducing swelling and discomfort, um, but you have to consider whether the patient um, is clinically stable um, such um, that there um, is unlikely to be adverse effects um, related to hypoperfusion and renal injury. Um, thank you. So, in addition, obviously, people get very concerned with any penetrating injuries, and and uh, the 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 animals that are biting them obviously have dirty mouths, and uh, mm -hmm. and, and we're worried about infection in, in general. So, do you, do you have a preferred antibiotic to to give, and and potentially route of administration that you you'd like to give to these patients, or do you wait and see until you've initially assessed those wounds about whether you administer antibiotics or not? So um, antibiotic administration is very important, but we have to be prudent with our use of antibiotics. However, um, bite wounds are one of um, the situations in which um, it's very likely um, that localised sepsis and then potentially systemic sepsis can develop because of the crushing injury to the tissues and the inoculation of bacteria, and therefore 
um, administration of a broad spectrum antibiotic such as potentiated amoxicillin, excuse me, um, is um, an appropriate first line therapy in significant bite wound injuries. Um, it wouldn't be appropriate um, before receipt of um, culture and sensitivity results to consider um, using a higher tier of antibiotic treatment. Um, although there is a high level of contamination, um, it's generally from um, reviewing the culture and sensitivity results of cases of bite wounds that we have seen, um, a broadly sensitive population of bacteria um, that are inoculated into the wounds. Very good. So if you, um, I suppose, further down the line, when we talk about how you actually treat wounds, just out of interest, maybe because we were talking about antibiotics at the time, do you uh, always swab um, these wounds that you, 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 that you treat? Yes. So um, it is very important. Um, of course, there can be a huge range of complexity of bite wounds, but um, considering that they can... Um, have a significant um, level of crush injury beneath um, the skin that can't be visualised. Um, they um, often um, will require um, antibiotic, significant antibiotic treatment, and it's important that that is based upon cultural and sensitivity results as soon as those can be received, but we don't await those. Um, we treat empirically pending um, cultural and sensitivity um, results. Would you would you think so? If you had difficulty in finances, mm -hmm. would you recommend to people that they take a swab and then only submit that to culture if things don't go so well, or or, or would you, in your uh, experience, think that well maybe we <coughs> should culture? These I think if cases if you have often? limited finances and you have to make. Um, decisions within those restrictions um, then I would probably say that the priority is to ensure that the bite wounds are appropriately explored and thoroughly lavaged um, and then um, treat with empirical antibiotics and you could have taken a bacteriologist swab as you're suggesting um, and keep that such that it's then submitted um, if you have ongoing clinical concerns over the next couple of days. However, the delay in plating out um, the sample may well decrease your likelihood of, of getting um, a representative culture result. So, um, of course, there, there are limitations, but we always have to work within constraints. Thank you. So when, when we, we have injuries of the, of the distal limbs, it's quite easy to identify what might be going on and, and obviously we can explore those those injuries and if the patient is weight bearing then we're not necessarily concerned about about fractures but we might be concerned about joint in, involvement when, when we have injuries of the of the thorax head uh, neck area or even the abdomen do, do you think diagnostic imaging should be performed in all of these patients ideally diagnostic imaging should be performed um, in all of them um, if over the neck um, over the thorax or over the abdomen um, to try and determine whether um, there um, are any indications um, compelling you to perform surgical exploration. Having said that, um, I think that diagnostic imaging will not always um, indicate if a penetration has occurred and therefore whilst it's something that you would do to 
inform you of the um, degree of injury and to potentially provide evidence as to the nature of exploration you're going to perform. It doesn't mean if you see um, a thoracic radiograph that has minimal changes or an abdominal radiograph that has minimal changes that you can then say, well, we don't actually need to form any form of exploration at all. You would still need to ensure that the patient was um, sedated or anaesthetised as appropriate and that the... Um, the wound is explored, ex um, extending it to the extent at which um, it reaches, because you could miss um, sort of deep penetrations, um, even though you've performed diagnostic imaging. So do you, do you think it gives you some indication that there is a need to, to further explore, as in it can help you differentiate the, the animals that maybe... Um, don't need a thoracotomy or exploratory laparotomy or do you think that that's very difficult even to judge on? I think on that that's extremely difficult um, to judge. Um, I've recently looked at some data on thoracic bite wounds um, and um, there was a correlation between the severity of um, of abnormalities on thoracic imaging and the clinical decision to perform exploratory thoracotomy, um, but that may be sort of predetermined um, by the fact that um, we were um, performing the radiographs and um, it, it's difficult to tease out which ones were absolutely essentially required exploration versus a self-fulfilling prophecy where, whereby we saw more lesions and therefore felt that surgery was required that makes sense it, it is it is difficult though isn't it with the clinical decision making because you obviously want to explore that area and that might take you into the chest mm -hmm. or, or into the abdomen and do, do you have a gauge on how often it, those explorations actually lead to removal of a lung lobe or you know or repair of a gastrointestinal tract or again is that quite difficult to to tease out um so in terms of thoracic expiration, um, I would say that, and I'm trying to remember approximately, um, out of 30 patients that had thoracic expiration for um, expiration of bite wounds, um, I think it was around five of those that um, required a lung lobectomy. Um, I am speaking off the top of my head here um, and what was interesting was that there was no um, difference in terms of outcome between those patients um, that had a deep um, bite wound over the thorax as compared to those that needed a thoracotomy and again there was no um, difference in survival um, between those that didn't require a lung lobectomy and those that did have a lung lobectomy. So um, the difference in survival um, with an increase in mortality um, was um, only evident when you compared um, those with superficial bite wounds that only involved um, the skin. Um, if the um, bite wound involved deep muscle structures, um, there was a higher rate of mortality. It was around 20%. But then if... Um, the penetration seemed to extend to within the thoracic cavity and even damaged a lung lobe, there was no um, further increase in the rate of mortality. Um, it seemed that 
um, the um, main reason for mortality and um, postoperatively was because um, of um, clinical deterioration um, or death related to um, sepsis, um, SIRS and um, multiple organ dysfunction and I think um, that therefore the um, degree of muscle injury, muscle trauma and bacterial inoculation into muscle was um, probably the determining factor um, to whether a patient survived or not um, but it, there was um, no evidence um, that the clinical need to perform a thoracotomy negatively impacted upon survival. So that's probably a good uh, point to move on to the, the concept of either a, a golden hour or a, a time mm -hmm. of when when surgical exploration is is appropriate. Especially from different uh, aspects of veterinary medicine, we know that uh, interventional timing, appropriate antibiotics, probably is is related to outcome. However, there's always the, the flip side of that, of the, the, the two hit, if you like, mm -hmm. you know, problems associated with the initial trauma. And then if you anaesthetize a patient and cause more trauma, even though it's meant to be beneficial, it's still yeah. significantly contributing to the inflammatory process of, mm -hmm. the, of the patient. Um, do you, is there any decision making that you have to help guide you? decide when is appropriate to, to take that patient to anaesthetize it and, de and debride those those wounds um it is a very difficult question to answer because it will depend upon the individual um patient and um, there are of course um sometimes patients with very compelling reasons to um stabilize and very rapidly move to performing a surgical exploration such as patients that are presenting um, with exteriorized portions of a lung lobe um, or a sucking um, thoracic wound that can't be um, effectively um, sort of managed with adhesive dressings um, I think a period of stabilization is always um, important um, but I would say that probably optimally um, it would be ideal if the patient was dealt with within sort of 46 hours of presentation of course that's not always the reality um, and we don't have um, enough evidence within the literature to um, give um, any clear dictation as to what needs to be done um, there is not um, any degree um, of wealth in the human literature um, of bite wound injuries fortunately so um, we don't have um, a literature to refer to um, for this sort of fairly unique injury which is both penetrating inoculating bacteria and producing significant significant crush um, and vascular trauma um, in in other species so we d we have quite limited information in the literature but we're looking at more um, of um, more patients to try and contribute more to the veterinary literature do you, do you think that um, looking at big data that this might help so with the venom coding and, and maybe the, the codification of, of different disease processes uh, that's being used in a number of vet practices in the UK and, and the USA do you think that that might help or um, potentially not with these questions because it might not actually show the timeline it might not actually and a lot of animals will probably get antibiotics regardless of you know and it might be hard to actually find out on these programs when they had antibiotics i think it it can only be a positive contribution to our understanding of what 
the most appropriate clinical clinical practices, but of course there will be limitations um, having um, different clinicians with their different approaches, um, different ways of um, recording information, um, but it, it has to be a great start. So it's a really um, excellent way to contribute to optimising our understanding of what to do. And when you're actually um, looking at wounds, so once you've made the decision to take a patient to theatre and, and to clean and debride the wounds, do you have any preferred mechanisms of de debriding those uh, those wounds and the um, the fluid choice or the needle choice uh, to, to try and lavage um, those so, wounds? So initially we would want to perform very thorough um, lavage um, and the best one of the best lavage solutions will be um, compound sodium lactate um, but 0.9% um, sodium chloride would also be appropriate um, it's about um, volume and pressure um, to provide the um, best um, means of lavage um, the use of um, a 25 mil syringe um, with a green 18-gauge needle um, produces 15 pounds per square inch when um, um, the um, <clears throat> the saline is forced um, out of the syringe, and that um, has been suggested to be an optimal level of pressure to not drive bacteria and matter deeper into the tissues, but to effectively um, dislodge superficial bacteria and reduce contamination um, and I would generally um, use between a 500 ml to a litre bag um, of flush solution um, and attach it um, with a three-way tap in a giving set such that you can readily um, lavage um, drawing up um, more solution and then lavaging um, the wound and um, without having to repeatedly um, connect the syringe and draw up more. Absolutely. And do, do you have a, a, a preferred technique when you're actually debriding tissue? Because I suppose I always found it very difficult to decide what is alive and attached and what is not and what was appropriate to remove and what is not. And mm. is it better to, if you're unsure, to leave it in or and, and readdress it if you, if you possibly can mm -hmm. in 12, 24 hours later or 36 hours later? Or is it better to, to remove it if it doesn't look like it's going to... Um, be functional so again it's a very difficult question to answer because um, there are two ways of looking at it one is that you of course don't want to be um, debriding tissue which is simply looking slightly unhealthy but is only bruised and might um, recover if allowed um, um, some time however having said that in this circumstance we have a major concern about the development of local infection subsequent systemic sepsis and therefore um, provided that tissue is not um, uh, you know providing an, an essential function um, I would err on the side of debriding more rather than less because um, the concern of leaving um, a potential septic focus is um, potentially the reason why um, there may be subsequent wound infection um, and in more severely affected cases the development of sepsis and potentially complicated management or, or death so um, I think it's important to be thorough um, and therefore that's why we do 
end up in the scenario of um, potentially doing staged evaluation um, every 12, um, well, every 24 or 48 hours um, to um, look and see um, how the tissue is appearing at that time and then perform further debridement then as necessary in addition to applying um, wet to dry dressings um, such um, that they um, provide a degree of debridement as they are removed um, between each dressing change. So can you briefly ex explain what a wet to dry dressing is please? So a wet to dry dressing um, is <clears throat> the use of open weave um, uh, sterile um, gauze swabs um, soaked in saline um, to provide a moist wound environment and applied directly to the wound bed. Um, over time um, that um, swab actually dries onto the wound um, such that it becomes um, adherent to the wound. When that is then removed, and it should be removed without being soaked off, otherwise that d defeats the purpose, um, then any tissue that isn't readily viable um, comes away attached to the swab um, and hopefully leaves a healthy, sort of bleeding, um, fresh surface underneath. Um, in wounds that are very exudative, um, then the swab would be applied dry um, and um, that avoids sort of further maceration of the wound bed, but it serves the same, sort of pr follows the same principle. Okay, okay. And do you, do you prefer to place wet to dry dressings on or, or have delayed primary closure with a drain or does it depend on the, on the size of the wound that you are dealing with? It depends upon the degree of contamination, the d degree of tissue vitalisation. So it would always be preferable if the wound um, looked healthy enough to close that wound over a drain at the first point of um, exploration. Um, but that could only be opted for um, if the um, level of contamination was minimal and had been addressed by lavage, um, if the um, tissues appeared healthy um, and any sort of concern about tissue viability had been addressed with debridement at that stage, um, the wound would then be closed and a drain would be left in place to address um, any tissue fluid um, accumulation and um, residual um, contamination which could lead to infection. So that would be um, the ideal approach um, that you would perform. However, if there is um, significant contamination and significant um, loss of tissue viability or questionable tissue viability, um, then it would be better um, for delayed closure to be performed after um, a series of, of um, dressing changes. And with, if you were going to place a drain, mm -hmm. a Penrose drain you're happy with or, or do you think the active suction drains are better? <clears throat> so um, there are a range of different drains. It would depend upon where they were being placed as to what you would choose. Um, the primary advantage of an active suction drain is that it is a closed system um, and therefore the risk of ascending infection is um, potentially lower than an open passive drain such as um, the Penrose drain um, and for that reason it's often what you would choose in preference if you had a clean um, surgical wound say for example following 
um, skin reconstruction, maybe for an oncologic resection. Um, there are disadvantages of the active suction drains in that um, they um, can sometimes lose suction, they can sometimes become blocked, and maybe sometimes they aren't as effective. If you have a contaminated wound in which um, th it's um, there's already... Um, potentially bacteria present in the wound and what you optimally want is to achieve drainage, um, then I would tend to opt more for the Penrose drain. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I suppose finally, maybe, finally maybe, that sounds very good, doesn't it? Would you, do you treat dogs and cats differently with, with wound management or do you, do you treat them pretty much the, the same? Um, I think the general approaches are very much um, the same. Um, it, often, although um, the patients that we see with bite wounds are more commonly dogs because they are more likely to have altercations with bigger dogs whilst out in the park, cats seem to be a bit um, quicker at getting away, so perhaps we don't see um, as many um, cats that have been victims of bite wounds, but when we do see them, um, they do tend to be really quite severely affected um, and therefore um, potentially the prognosis for cats that have had thoracic trauma um, is more grave. Yeah, I think it's fair enough. It's odd, isn't it, that dogs biting other dogs do cause significant injury and cats biting other cats cause significant injury but when a dog bites a cat it's, it seems to be a bit a bit worse a bit worse yeah yeah okay so if, if it was if it was going to um recap a little uh so obviously we need to have a look at major body systems and deal with any um impending uh um, cause of concern to do with the, the heart brains or lungs but uh, an opioid uh, analgesia if you're if you're full mu uh, opioid agonist such as methadone morphine or fentanyl i'd imagine would be good and non-steroidals can be effective obviously you want to make sure the hydration status and renal function um and everything else is is okay antibiotics would be preferential and broad a broad spectrum such as potentiated moxicillin would be would be good and the intravenous route to intravenous we didn't say that yeah yeah to, to make sure that we get um adequate concentrations up and as far as a, a, a timing of surgery, you'd like to do it within four to six hours of, of presentation, obviously depending on how stable the, the patient is. I suppose that's a, another question that... And know, that would be probably when you, your clinical suspicion is that it is a more serious um, presentation of a bite wound. Yeah. Um, and diagnostic imaging obviously is, is helpful um, and might lend you or lean you more towards uh, a, a more of a thorough exploratory surgery but doesn't necessarily um, give you good information all the time. It doesn't preclude you from having to um, follow the plan of exploration unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and then if we were gonna if we we're gonna lavage these wounds once we've uh, once we are uh, looking at them, then CSL or, or comp uh, sorry, compound sodium lactate or 0.9% sodium chloride and a 25ml um, syringe with an 18-gauge needle. And if you attach that to a, uh, a giving set and a three-way tap, it, it, uh, it 
at least helps you um, from using the appropriate amount of, of fluid, which is which is quite a quite a lot, um, and stops having to fill up sy syringes. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that's quite quite wise. With a, with a wet what dry dressings, uh, you said you soak the gauzes. Are, are they are they wet or do you do you wring them out or? As, as um, they're they... not they're not um, dripping wet, so they're soaked and then um, gently wrung out before being applied. <laughs> okay. Um, just to the right level of wetness, <laughs> and then and then we'd uh, put some dry swabs o over that and 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 bandage that and bandage that to, yeah. the, to the skin, um, and then and then reevaluate. So how how long would you would twenty four hours be okay for a wet to dry dressing, or or would you want to have a look at it sooner than that? You would want to look at it and um, once every twenty four hours. So it does then mean that the patient requires daily sedations or anaesthesia and it's really vital that we carefully consider that, that the patient is getting sufficient nutrition between those periods of withholding food before each episode of dressing change. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a very a very good point. I suppose that uh, we don't want to don't want to take away that, that nutrition aspect because that's an important part of wound healing and making sure mm -hmm. they can generate enough proteins and albumin to, to, to heal themselves. That's it for this time. Many thanks for listening and please feel free to email us uh, a comment at, on dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk. Rate us on iTunes. Don't be frightened to give us a five-star rating and uh, go to the show notes on the RBC pages. Until next time, many thanks.